Welcome to Retaining the Passion, Journeys Through Nursing. This is a non-affiliated podcast. Any views expressed by the hosts or guests do not necessarily represent those of the organizations they work for or are studying at, or any trade unions or professional bodies they are members of. Thanks for listening. Welcome everybody to our first official podcast episode after our uh, introduction last week. Uh, We have got a new feature for you as suggested on Twitter by Paula M. Gale. So before we talk about our theme for today, we're going to do that and it's there's a first time for everything. So Craig, what have you done for the first time this week? Well, it was actually really interesting. This week I got to pull Uh, on skills that I learned from various different student nursing placements. So I had an extended placement in urology and for the first time this week after completing my training I catheterized a patient for the first time as a registered nurse. So that was very And I can't tell you as a mental health nurse, Craig got in touch and told us how, ex- how told me how excited he was about the flow of urine. As mental health nurses, and I'm guessing other fields of nurses, really don't understand that level of excitement, but you were very excited. <laughs> there is nothing more satisfying than seeing a return of urine because you know you've got it right and it's in the right place. But I'll also, take your uh, word for it. Thank you very much. Uh, but also, I am... Um, had a placement in an oncology outpatient clinic where people came in and I gave a a hormone replacement um, drug to a patient on the wards as well and so it was great I had all these skills that I'd learned as a student actually come together in my job so that was very exciting so what was the first time for everything for you Claire? So for me this week, I wrote um, and submitted my very first tribunal report. So when somebody is held on a section in a mental health ward, they are they you know have a legal right to appeal it. And as part of that appeal, when we work in the community, we do their social circumstances report. And um, it's one of the things you don't really do as a student. You might observe it. Um, but it's a legal document and it's a recommendation from a professional. So it was a massive thing for me because, you know, you're writing quite an important document. And then at the end, you write, you know, your title, which I'm used to writing that on notes, although our notes are kind of electric. But you write your title and your qualification and you submit this and it's like the professional opinion. So it was like, a oh, I'm a nurse. There you yeah. go. Uh, but that it, was... it's also, it, it, you know... It's a real impact on an individual, you know, being held under a a section. So, you know, you you take it really seriously. So although, you know, yeah, it's my first, I've done it. It's also um, quite a serious thing to have done. But yeah, yeah, I've done my first one. But that, yeah, the level of accountability and responsibility when you're no longer that student, you are the registered nurse. I know we might seem a bit flippant about the new things, but you're always cognizant at the back of your mind about that. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And that, you know, uh, that journey is just so important. And I think it's, as you achieve these things, you also have to remember that there's a patient. And I was really conscious of that. And I think doing it in the time of COVID for me as well means that, you know, I was at home. And so, um, you know, my preceptor's been amazing and she's read it and she's given, you know, I've, I've been able to phone colleagues, but still doing that at home was a strange kind of experience but yeah first first thing so we're going to do that each week right we're going to talk about things uh first time for everything mainly focused around nursing but you know might be my cooking as well exactly Um, so we'll see so thank you and if anyone else has any suggestions for features for the podcast please let us know 
So today's episode is entitled Finding Hope and it's quite a personal choice I think for our first episode that Craig and I spent quite a long time thinking about which was going to be the first episode and there's lots of reasons we've chosen it some um, that are related to what's going on in the world um, outside our windows at the moment and some real personal reasons and we're just going to give you a brief introduction as to why personally we think this is really important before we introduce our guests. So Craig, finding hope, what's that about for you? Finding hope for me, well I think um, I'm a member of the LGBT community, a proud member of the LGBT community, but it's taken me very many years to get here. I thought it was important that that June is Pride Month. This episode has come out at the end of that month and I wanted us to focus on that. Um, So for me, I knew, I think, I was gay from a very young age. I mean, my first crush was Prince Eric from The Little Mermaid, age five. (laughs) But, I still love that story. <laughs> but I didn't want to be gay. I didn't want to be different. Uh, I used to get bullied by people who said I was gay, even though I hadn't publicly come out. And that led to years and years of really repressed, internalized homophobia. Um, part of the reason why I ended up running away, in a sense, to London to go and and study acting before I moved home was because I didn't feel like I could come out and be my authentic self at home, which makes me feel really sad in reflection because I was about to go to university to study medicine, but chose a completely different path. And I don't regret it because everything brings us to where we are now. But that um, internalized homophobia and that damage I caused myself led to a lot of self-destructive behavior um, a lot of risk-taking behaviour. I've been quite open about the fact I had substance misuse issues. I um, abused alcohol uh, and just didn't have very good coping strategies and spent my 20s not a very happy boy. I think a lot of that yeah. was to do with being away from home and just not really finding a sense of, my, of myself. And that ultimately ended up to me having a very acute period of mental ill health in 2015 and I was an inpatient in a mental health setting uh, and subsequently then moved back to Scotland. So for me, I am now back at home with um, my family and support networks all around me. I um, have been completely sober for five years and I am finally so happy with who I am I'm engaged. Yeah, we talked about that a lot, right? Like yeah. finding your comfort place. And stuff. Yeah, and I'm engaged to be married to a wonderful, wonderful man who puts up with a heck of a lot from me. And I even though he throws your microphone away. <laughs> <laughs> and I just feel like now nursing as well has really helped me find who I am, and I'm so grateful to that because it's allowed me to be my authentic self. So finding hope for me is you take yourself at that lowest moment and that can be your personal journey to you. Like I never thought I would bounce back from where I was in 2015 and I can't Mm -hmm. believe where I am now. Sometimes I need to pinch myself to look back because I think I'm so always so cognizant about pushing ahead to the future and what am I going to do next that I never enjoy the moment. So, And five years is such a short time span, really. If you think from 2015 to now you've, you've, 
look at what you've achieved in that really short period of time from where you thought there was no hope. Yeah. So hope is about how you can flip a coin and how you can turn it around. So for me, hope is taking at your lowest ebb and then trying to see a future brighter than that. So that's hope for me. And what about for you, Claire? I think for me, it was interesting. I've done quite a lot of reflection, I suppose, since we chose the topic, because there's so much going on in the world outside. Like you say, it's Pride Month. There's lots of issues. You know, if you're on Twitter, you see lots of issues. Trans issues particularly are really dominant. There's a lot of um, negativity around certain, you know, celebrities and media stars around their their anti kind of trans um, stuff that they're putting out. Obviously, you know, we can't... um, talk about this without talking about Black Lives Matters and how dominant that is in in the news. And I think, um, you know, I'm a white, I guess, middle class female um, coming from a privileged kind of background. And I, you know, sometimes I struggle with that, I think, in terms of do, should this be something I'm talking about? Is this some, you know, this isn't my, um, is this my fight? And I don't want it to not be my fight because I want to be there for my friends and you know and society really to make things okay because some of the stuff you hear is so abhorrent um so I've I've spent quite a lot of this week thinking about that and thinking about um you know how can I be an ally to these people how can I move it forward what 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 is the right thing to do what are the right questions to ask and you know I I grew up abroad which I don't talk about a huge amount and I remember my brother had white blonde hair and I remember being surrounded by people in Asia who just wanted to touch my brother's hair and being quite frightened by that because you know he was pretty much mobbed and we were really little and that's really the only kind of um experience that I can look back on and think about being scared you know I've got that privilege where I haven't been scared to walk down the road but um, 25 years ago, I went to university. I don't make a secret of any of that. I went to be a nurse. Um, I did two years and I, I developed um, epilepsy. I was having scans to see if I had brain cancer because they found a growth on my brain. It wasn't, you know, I was really lucky. But my university at the time, pretty unceremoniously, after my second seizure, um, said, well, that's it. You're off the course. Um, you know, they they didn't account for my disability they didn't give me any chance to become controlled um to see if I had a pattern to my seizures and so I felt really marginalized I felt like I'd fought really hard to get into that um degree initially because I was told I was too clever to be a nurse but that's a whole other story um so you know I fought really hard and I felt really like I'd been dismissed and I, I really didn't know who I was for a really long time. And um, outwardly, you know, I got up, I got on, I moved back to Manchester, I got, a, I got a job, I, you know, did all of those kind of things. I was successful in what I did. I have a wonderful husband, four lovely kids. So, you know, a lot of me was, was really happy, but there was always this feeling of being a lesser human. And, and I really think that, and I still have mm-hmm. moments of that now, that I felt I was worthless as a result of my epilepsy and I've never denied my epilepsy and I'm not ashamed of it rightly you know rightly so um and I think I felt less of a person and that's not a nice place to be you know you feel less of an individual I didn't feel I felt worthless and I felt like that for a really really long time like 20 years of my life there was part of me that felt like I was you know less of yeah less of a person and um 
coming into nursing has made me, you know, I say it quite a lot of time, I'm where I'm meant to be. I I know my worth now, I think. I feel like I am calmer and 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 I've developed relationships in a more positive way, possibly. And I didn't have any hope. You know, I felt that when that door closed, hope went away with it. Um, and I look back now and wish that I had been able to find hope. And yeah. so I want people to feel like they have hope. And I suppose that for me is the important part of this, no matter who you are or where you come from, that you find hope. And so we chose two amazing guests to kind of bring their story, which is very different to our story, um, to talk to us about that. And you and I both, um, well, you helped to coordinate it. I was on the committee um, at the time with the RCN and you um, were really passionate about this. And we both attended the RCN Student Ambassador Conference entitled Courageous About Equality and Bold About Inclusion in Cardiff um, in 2019. And the feeling in that room was electric and inspiring it was full of passionate people it's one of my highlights of of the student journey and on the panel was um, a lady called Tara Hewitt and her story and her experience is just the definition of hope and so here is our chat with Tara. So I'm delighted that we've got Tara Hewitt with us today. Tara is the Group Equality and Inclusion Programme Manager at Northern Care Alliance NHS Group, and she also helped found the Trans NHS Staff Network. Hello, Tara. Thank you for joining us. It's great to be on your show. Thanks for having me. So we just want to start, really. This episode's all about finding hope, and we we just want to start with your story, really. Where where have you got to to this point? Um, and you know, we'd love to hear some you know personal accounts of your journey, but but nothing that you'd feel uncomfortable sharing with our listeners. So I think as a a bisexual trans um, uh, woman in the NHS, we're not always as is visible as a as a specific group so if you went out and asked people to to give a list of of names of people that have the same background to me I know a lot of leaders may may struggle with that in terms of talking about how many um, trans uh, people that they've talked to so um, I think a lot of people may not have that that reality of, of the experience for somebody like me working in the NHS so a bit about me, I started in um, as a band five, a quality and diversity officer over a decade ago in a small mental health trust after transitioning as a, a trans woman at the University of Liverpool. And so I was thrown into the, the deep end of um, seeing how equality hadn't been handled in the NHS over something called the Transforming Community Services, which was a, a TCS, it was called. We love our acronyms in the NHS. <laughs> we do. <laughs> do and I speak to people now and it makes me feel old when people don't know what TCS means but I remember in the first week working in the NHS um, I was told well you know about equality you did human rights and discrimination law um, I've got a business partner here we're about to lose this massive contract because we've not done an equality impact assessment on it go and sort it out and as somebody <laughs> in the early 20s uh, who had sort of idealistic views of what maybe our NHS institutions were, although a little bit tainted through being a trans person and having to to, to navigate some of the health barriers. Um, I think it was a real eye-opener into the world of, of what my uh, future career and work was was going to be like. So over, over the last 
decade, I've worked in a number of acute mental health community and big group um, NHS organisations as an equality practitioner, as a manager and as a, as a senior manager around um, EG&I. Uh, and I've seen some changes in terms of how we look at EG&I and a shift towards actually we need to be supporting our leaders to have an impact around equality and diversity. The job of equality and diversity isn't the role of an equality officer or a quality manager. Their roles are there to signpost, to coach, to link to information, to help put the systems in place so that staff voices and LGBT um, in, in the context of um, Pride um, Month right now, LGBT voices can be uh, heard. But again, when I started, I feel, and still in, in some organisations, often the, the role of what, what's happening around equality and Pride Month and, and things like that are left to an equality officer or an equality manager. Um, and I think some, in some ways that was why when uh, COVID um, uh, broke out in terms of the pandemic, there was people who were redeployed in some organisations because um, it was seen as, well, an add-on. We don't need this right now. We need some action. And, and actually right at, at that point, we, we did need those people. So I've seen that shift. Um, I've seen um, people who have um, challenged me um, because I'm trans. I've seen people say, passive microaggressions even as an equality manager around well um trans people get an easy deal in certain roles what do you think about that or or when you've had to um give advice so a real story that that sticks in my head was working in a mental health trust um not that long ago probably about four four years ago and I was pulled out of a a multidisciplinary meeting where I was giving advice on a placement for a a patient who um, had uh, multiple disabilities and, and needed a specialist placement and what I received when I got dragged out of this meeting was a phone handed to me and a nurse on the other end of the phone saying, I've got a, a person in A&E Tara, I need help, they've got a penis, but they're a woman, but I don't know where to put them and we haven't sectioned them or placed them in, in mental health care uh, because we've been waiting to speak to you for two hours because we don't know what to do with this person. And as a trans person trying to give advice down the phone at that moment, it was like, it was really surreal and you've sort of got to and I know our frontline staff do this way more than I do is sort of pull yourself out of that situation give the advice that needs to be given but it, it you reflect on that to say is, yeah. is that still where we are is that where attitudes still are and so, that's just like you're saying Tara that just shouldn't be how it is like we should have it embedded into pre-registration nursing standards how to manage those sorts of situations and just, if you're not sure and you want to discuss something with someone we discuss things as nurse you know we don't always know the right answer to everything do we there's a way of asking and yeah. that it just isn't it I think being honest about trans equality, there is an absence of expertise inside the NHS when it comes to trans issues. If you look right across the board when it comes to who would you go to in the NHS who is an expert on trans social issues, trans health issues, trans training, I can count on less than one hand those people that that, that would have that expertise around this agenda there's people that I think are really fantastic allies and I hope we get a chance to go on to talk a a bit about that in terms of the role of those allies around both trans and and LGBT equality but 
I think that one of the things the NHS hasn't progressed on is we haven't brought the, the knowledge and experience in at the different levels, both in nursing and in management, so that there's a confidence in acting around uh, trans equality. And we've seen that in some of the scandals or awfully managed stories that have hit the newspapers um, both this year and in the last few years at NHS England and in other trusts. Yeah, because there's such a big difference in having people with lived experience of issues who have their own stories to bring to roles. We obviously want allies, but having representatives and nurses and managers who are trans and have their lived experience is invaluable. I think there's, there's, there's a mix of all of that. It's like we need allies, we need trans people. And then I think on any other issue where you know that you don't have knowledge knowledge there around it, any safeguarding, infection control, you'd want to bring in the leading experts in those areas to be involved at, at some level. And you still get people saying, well, we don't know what to do on trans issues. And yet we haven't brought anybody in, both either just from lived experience, but actually there's academics, there's people worked in the private sector who they don't even have to be trans, but have a background in working in trans equality um, in their area. Um, or actually skilling up our staff, actually people that have maybe have more experience working with trans patients and taking them into roles where they can have influence and impact. And I just think it's it's something that we've sort of been very laissez-faire and, and not really had a, a laser focus on. Um, we just keep saying we don't know what we're doing, we're trying to do our best and I don't think that's good enough anymore in 2020. So if we look at that and we're looking at um, the title of today's podcast, it's Finding Hope. Yeah. So what do you see as key issues in society that are maybe reflected as challenges in nursing? And how do you think um, newly qualified registrants can work to reduce stigma and inspire hope? Say so that that's a very big question. Who likes a challenge, I'll guess. God, what social challenges that exist. <laughs> I think that nurses face the, the, the same challenges that all of us face, both in, in a workplace and in our communities, which is we need to really value people's lived identity and experiences but without singling that out as, as separate and without singling them out as individual identities as well. So that intersectionality becomes incredibly important as a nurse. And how do you view somebody not as a trans person or as a black woman or as a gay man, but as a patient that may have experiences that impact on how you need to deliver that care? And I think the messages and the, the, the feedback we've got, sadly, or even since 2010 for, from government, is holding our hands up. That's too hard to do. So even going back to the implement, implementation of the Equality Act in 2010, we were meant to have something called uh, dual discrimination and be made illegal. Um, you would actually be able to say, if I'm being discriminated as a Muslim woman, rather than as a Muslim or as a woman, I would be able to be protected. The government just went, oh, that's too hard to do. We can't have people having two identities and be protected around that. Um, and I think that just sends the wrong message out. Like there's, there's, there's this idea that you can't identify as a trans person, or as a gay person, because you've been radical in identity politics and, and all of that. But then when we try to get people to view us as more than a single identity, those same people tell us, no, that's too complicated. Yeah. If I'm honest, the, the cynic in me says that there's there's some people that want us to constantly see all of this is too difficult so that the status quo stays, stays the same. But the message for, 
for, for nurses and for, for people out there is, is use the skills that you went into nursing to do is to listen to the person who's in front of you, be authentic, accept when that you don't always get things right. Even as a, a quality practitioner who is trans, who's worked in this field for, for years, I get things wrong all the time, but my willingness for somebody to tell me, no, Tara, that, that isn't right, and go, okay, how do I get this right, um, is what I think is it, it puts setting you on the right path. So I think a lot of nurses get that, but the fear and the imposter syndrome sometimes that comes in around EGI issues stops them using those skills that they've already got. Yeah, I think hearing what you're saying, people get worried. Like I've heard stories of friends who um, a trans woman's come on to a ward but it was an all-female ward and they weren't sure where they should be placed and they just get so panicked that they're going to make the wrong decision that they freeze in inaction. Yeah. yeah. So I think that, that sort of blends me over to how I think we need to approach um, all marginalised issues right now, but looking at LGBT and specifically trans with my own lived experience, is for me there's almost three things we need to do in terms of turning allies into having that that, that, that big impact that we want them to, to have. The first is looking at how do we equip people with real information that they can feel confident in, that they can rely on, that stops them freezing in that moment, but also to free up those people um, that are passionate allies, that actually the senior leaders that I know in in our system, people like Sam Allen uh, down in Sussex, people like um, uh, Peter Molyneux, uh, people like Prana, who's our chief people officer, who are incredibly supportive around LGBT and trans issues, how do we give them facts so that they can turn that support and passion and, and wanting to do something into things where they feel they can act and if they're challenged, that they can respond confidently. So they get that information from reliable sources, not just from activist groups, which is what trans people and even LGBT as a wider community have often been left to. How do we get that, that information in a place that, that people can rely on it? The, the second thing is how do we make sure that people have those access to diverse experiences? How are they having conversations with um, LGBT people of colour, with disabled LGBT people, with trans people, with non-binary people, with pansexual people? I could list whole ranges of different communities, but it's not about ticking them off like an I spy or or going through an alphabet (laughs) or all of that. It's about actually recognising which groups of people do you not know what their reality is um, and how can you as a leader consciously make effort to, to bring yourself into contact with those experiences and so we need to help those leaders do that we need to find ways to bring stories so with the trans staff network we've linked up our members with some of the directors and chief execs who've said that they're supportive so they've got mentors that can um, share in both ways both from a senior leader and helping them on their career but also that lived experience of what it means to be trans and then I'd say the final thing that we we can do for, for our allies is I know it sounds simple but we need to shout about those specific allies and um, one of the things I feel incredibly privileged not only because I'm white and middle class as a, as a trans woman but I'm connected to the people who I feel will push back against the worst excesses of this sort of anti-trans movement right now. I'm seeing those leaders who are willing to 
to go out there and say, you know what, um, this is our organisations. We are not going to allow hate and prejudice and the progress we've made to go backwards. Yeah. We're not going to allow that to, to happen. So I know who those allies are because I'm connecting with them, I'm seeing them, I'm talking to them. But if I'm a porter or a, a newly qualified nurse, or I'm working in a catering role or whatever role it is in the NHS, and I'm seeing what's coming out from Liz Trust around trans rights issues or Baroness Nicholson or JK Rowling or any of this stuff right now, I'm probably really scared and I'm anxious about my future. We can help those people by making sure they see that they've got people on their side, they know who they are, and we we celebrate those allies and make sure there's that visibility. So if we do those three things, we equip people with information, we make sure people's lived experience and stories are being heard with the right people, and we celebrate those people that, that want to be on our side. And I think you can apply that model not just to trans issues, but to LGBT, to BAME and, and broader underserved communities. I think that's what we need to do around our equality practice, not just fluffy initiatives that, that haven't worked um, over the last 20 to 30 years. Yeah, and I just think you're so right. And with the trans issues that's going on at the moment, like we grew up during Section 28, we're all a bit older. So we grew up and saw the long lasting impacts that's had and what's happening with trans rights at the moment has dangerously horrible parallels with that so we certainly can't see that coming and I like what you're saying about getting the leaders to have be equipped with these skills because newly qualified nurses are going to eventually be the leaders of the future so if we can have those skills in now then hopefully when these people progress through their careers we'll be in such a better place from the whole spectrum of equality diversity and inclusion. I think that leadership also comes at all levels even as newly qualified nurses you're you are seen as leaders in forums that you're in. Yeah. Um, and I think that sometimes when we talk about leadership, and I, it is probably because I started with a hierarchical, here's the sum of the And they are important in pushing back against government. But we know most of the work, realistically, and the decisions that happen and the, the day-to-day uh, things that, that matter in terms of to, to patients um, and in our workplaces are, are, are on the front line. And actually, the, the leaders that we need to also celebrate that are getting this and that are willing to uh, spend their own time to actually build those relationships and knowledge um, are also our newly qualified nurses. So I'd say that you're right, but it, it also applies to, to, to those leaders in, in, that, in that role too. I think it's so important as well, like hearing you talk about allies, because, you know, I'm a, a white, middle aged, middle class woman. And I think a lot of people feel like, it's not their business, which is such a shame and that they can't be there to share that, you know, to to ask those questions, to share that lived experience. It absolutely is all of our business. You know, we talk about raising children as it takes a village, but actually that's what the whole world needs to look like. We all need to come together with different experiences. So it's really great to hear you talk about allies in that way. I think that for me, you can't call yourself an equality champion unless you champion issues that don't just resonate with yourself. So I said, I spent a lot of my time working and designing race equality programs that are having an impact in the NHS. For me, I'm I'm passionate about actually some of the rise in anti-Semitism and Islamophobia that we've seen um, in the UK. And I I want to talk about issues that matter to everybody in my community and that I can lend my voice to. I need to stand in front of people and use my own privilege. So being white, I'm often in spaces that some of my BAME colleagues aren't. 
And I'll ask those questions that need to be asked in that space about why am I here and other people not there. And say that if we all did that more, rather than just championing our own issues that we relate to, we would all benefit. Because being honest about trans issues, if 1% of the population is trans as a a broad figure, we are not going to solve transphobia. Actually, we have no trans MPs. We have no trans people in directors' roles in the NHS, no trans people in the House of Lords. And even in LGBT, our numbers are relatively small. Actually, it's our allies that are going to change the things that, that matter because they hold the power. So we need to yeah. engage allies. They're vital. So I know you've given us three really, you know, really clear kind of strategies that we can all follow. But I guess in terms of very kind of practical things that NQNs can do to either educate themselves or be be those allies and start to do things, what kind of practical advice would you maybe give big or small to, to NQNs? I'd say really simply, just be intentional about your language and actually being intentional about learning from others that you're interacting with. So um, sometimes people tell me, well, I always get my language wrong. I, I make mistakes about, about things and we all make mistakes, but let's think about clinical practice. If, if we constantly made a mistake in clinical practice, then actually we'd be challenged on that and we'd be expected to get some development and to work on having an impact. And the, the, the example I often use in training around making mistakes um, is I remember a training session I delivered to some nurses probably about five or six years ago. And there was a video which was talking about um, know who I am. There's all these different people saying know who I am. I identify as a lesbian. I identify as LGBT, all of these different things and their experiences in healthcare. And there was a person who was genderqueer talking about their maternity services um, experience, access to maternity services. And I turned around to this room and said that that woman's experiences were awful. And I'd misgendered that person to this entire room as an equality trainer who's trans. um, And they're all staring back at me. And I I use that as a a learning experience to the room and say, I make mistakes, but also maternity is a word which is rightfully associated with women because women are the people that mainly access that service and we should never remove that but actually men and trans and non trans men and non-binary people access that service and my brain had been conditioned into just casually using that language and i know that if i don't think about that those words if i'm talking about maternity services or even that case study that we've just done now i might slip into actually not talking in, in a way that reflects that person's identity and so i'm consciously thinking about that language and i think that that's important if we care about other people then we'll take the time to do it so the first thing is is being intentional about what you're saying and if you get something wrong apologize or if somebody challenges you listen and reflect at why they're challenging you secondly is take time to listen and learn from other voices so go out there watch youtube videos speak to to people if you get an opportunity from different backgrounds join your lgbt staff network so that you can hear those stories if there's a living library event book yourself up to 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 go to those but also don't beat yourself up that you can't do everything actually you you're on a journey as a human being in terms of learning and growing and you can't overnight suddenly uh, transform um, your uh, understanding of, of, of every different community and every different issue. But as long as you're committed to being on that journey and you're taking those small steps, actually, that you're, you're on the right track. That's brilliant advice. Thank you. It's so good. Um, Tara, well, we are so grateful that you came on and spoke with us today. If people want to follow you on social media, where can they reach you? 
So just at Tara underscore Hewitt or at Trans NHS. And we've got a Trans NHS uh, staff Facebook group if you are a, a trans uh, nurse, a student nurse, or in any other NHS role, um, we, we'd love to hear from you. And, and generally, if people have got any questions or, or just want to engage with me as, as Tara, I'm always happy to chat to people if they drop me a tweet. As she was in Cardiff, Tara continues to be so inspiring and what a great message of hope she has shared with us all. Some of the resources that Tara mentioned can be found at lgbt.foundation's website, so I suggest you have a look there. Um, Next up, we have another amazing guest, Dr. Calvin Morley. I have followed um, Calvin for years on Twitter, and he is a fantastic person to follow with such rich experience to share. So now we're going to talk with Calvin, so hope you enjoy. Okay, everybody, we're delighted to have a second guest uh, on our podcast. Um, We would love to welcome Dr. Calvin Morley. He's an adult nurse and associate professor of nursing research based in London. So hello and welcome, Calvin. Thank you. Thank you. Happy to be here. So this podcast is focusing on finding hope. So could you just tell us your own story in your own words, just a little bit about how you've got to where you are, We'd love this to be a personal account, but please don't share anything that you would feel uncomfortable with. Um, hope is such a wonderful thing to start with. Um, it, it, it gives us the, um, to use a phrase, puts the fire in your belly sometimes when you hope to achieve something and you want to get there. It gives you that drive and motivation. So, I, I, I mean, for example, one of the hopes that I had, um, and if you're talking about newly qualified nurses, we've all had um, what we now call the toxic mentor. But in that mentor, you always were scared of when you were a student nurse, or the mentor you know that was never going to tell, praise you as a student when you look for praise. You're never going to get it from them. And I had this mentor turn around to me and said, um, you will never be a qualified nurse. I'll make sure of that. And I was Why? like, okay. <laughs> I was like, okay. Um, we work with that, and, uh, but my main mentor had gone away on leave, and when Des came back, I explained to him what happened, and he was just so good. Um, but one of the things that says, like, you know, I will prove to you, and I will prove to you that I could be what we would call a damn good nurse, and um, I'm so qualified, <laughs> and I, I worked in Essex, and um, one of the things about my journey is that I, um, I couldn't understand the heart when I was a student nurse. And um, so when I qualified, I came to London and I started working at Guys in St. Thomas's Hospital. And I was asked to follow this consultant. And, you know, again, when you're a newly qualified nurse, you're like, why do I have to go and sit in an outpatient appointment with this consultant? Because I'm a qualified nurse now, actually taking patients. (laughs) (laughs) And um, and the, the easiest thing this doctor did was he drew a square and two lines across it. And he says, that's your heart. It's got four chambers, he said to the patients. Upper, lower, left, right, you know. And I was like, oh, my God. And when I was a student, I was trying to draw these little veins coming out. And, <laughs> and he broke it on <laughs> So when he broke it on it was really interesting. So um, I, I, I then became a cardiothoracic ICU nurse working in Guys and Tommies. And then I moved on from there. Um, and I started to do my degree. And I couldn't understand research. I, I mean, Quant was all right, but Quant wasn't very, was very difficult. And I pondered, I did a degree in politics at the University of London, Goldsmiths College. And um, so I did that. And one of the things um, I remember the vice chancellor said at my graduation was, if you know anything about London, Goldsmiths College is situated in New Cross. 
which um, I did. I, I graduated in 1999 um, from Goldsmiths, and it was. It's very known for its migrant populations. And the vice chancellor said one thing when I graduated. He said, "Goldsmiths is a gritty college, and you have to have grit to have survived here." And that <laughs> that was a reflection of you know where it, where it sat and everything else. But also in my year, there were only three of us who were black students at Goldsmiths College, University of London, back then, you know, I, and you really did feel that. Um, same, in, I, I, I studied at the University of Essex, and there was only about six of us who were from black and Asian ethnic minority students. So it was always this struggle and this hope I had as well, that, you know, as you go through life, you know, um, that struggle gives you hope that you could achieve and you could get where you want to. So tying the story up really nicely is that my whole thing has been it's if something gives me a problem, I take it head on. So I couldn't understand the heart. I went straight in and looked at cardiac ITU. I couldn't really get research. And now my title is Associate Professor for Nursing Research. <laughs> and I did a doctorate. So, um, so um, at the moment, you know, I look at the whole area of um, where we go now and how we empower people, and practically me in nursing education, empower students to do those things that, at the time, I'm not saying my lecturers were great, but it wasn't an issue. It wasn't really revealed as an issue. They did their best at their time. And I think it's my turn to actually take that further, what they have taught me and what I have learned through the years. So that's part of my hope. What a great and inspiring way to be, Calvin, because quite often people find comfort in staying where they are comfortable and not pushing those boundaries. Mm -hmm. So to know that you've gone into areas where you don't feel comfortable and you've pushed and you've not only achieved but excelled in those areas I mean for anyone listening and for myself and Claire that is so hugely inspirational it also uh, it gives me a bit of inspiration because Craig you and I are both a little bit stubborn uh, and I'm hearing that from Calvin that when somebody says no we go but uh, but yes <laughs> and push that door so that's really nice to hear um, I guess moving on from that, it's kind of a big question, our, our next question, but we'd love you to talk a little bit about how you, what you see kind of are the current key issues in society, but specifically how they're reflected as, as challenges in nursing and how maybe NQNs can work to reduce that stigma and inspire hope. So just a small, you know, solution to society for you to <laughs> Just to a at. small ask. <laughs> I, I mean, yeah, a small solution that will solve big problems, you know. Yeah, yeah um, that. I, I think, because, okay, we come from the education background. I think one of the things for NQN is um, they probably need to reflect on where they were taught of things around, particularly reflecting on what's happening now, is on social injustice in the curriculum. And I think um, social injustice covers all groups. Um, and we look at how people um, are not treated fairly and equitable. Because I think if you're treated equitable, you then reduces the inequality. So it's about equitable treatment that will then reduce inequalities in health, inequalities in social care, which is our line of work. So one of the things I would say is, and I think that the Nursing and Midwifery Council has about one point in that platforms that reflect, on, that reflect social injustice. Um, so I think as an NQN, what you need to do is when your patient speaks to you, you really need to listen what they're saying. And nursing, we're very good at being busy and very good at getting all the tasks done. Yeah. And I think your generation as an NQN has to bring into effect that actually I'm going to change this busyness. 
I'm going to sit and chat to my patient. And when someone tells me, but you didn't do this, you say, but I did do this. I did this for this patient. And yeah. what you would have done was relieve the psychological trauma the patient had, the stress they were experiencing. Um, you get to know them better. You build that rapport where they can trust you rather than just being busy. So, for example, yesterday we had um, this patient who was a day case, but then surgery went late because, you know, we're catching up with things, and it was now 9 o'clock in the night, and he had to go home. But they also prescribed the medication, and pharmacy was closed, his TTOs. And it's too late to get an outside prescription even in a pharmacy. But there is that special emergency drug cupboard that we can go to and get some of these drugs to dispense for him to go home. And there was... The nurse was on the floor now on night duty because it's nine o'clock in the night. This patient is getting because he wants to go home. His wife is parked outside waiting for him because she can't come into the hospital as such, or he's not allowed yet. And all I did was I said, okay, I'm going to use your name, for example, Craig. Okay, Craig, come with me. Because when I, when I saw him, I could see the anger on his face. I said to the nurse, okay, I'm going to take him downstairs. I'm going to sit him in the waiting area, directly near to the matron's office. And when she comes out, I'm going to give sure I give her the drug card. She's going to dispense the drug. He was happy, got to go home, called his wife. He wasn't in the situation with the nurse because she has all these other patients to look after. It, when I got back to the unit, oh, you were gone for like about 20 minutes longer than you were captain. I said, but yeah, I solved this problem. Because yeah. that made that nurse's life, her shift a little bit better because she didn't have to deal with an irate patient or an unhappy person. But it also meant he felt somewhat, as I walked past by, he said, thank you so much. You know, now I feel somebody's doing something. And, you know, at the changeover shift between half eight and nine, you think somebody isn't doing something as a patient, but they are. And I think this is one of the things you need to look at. So as an MQ, take your time. So when you do, when people do tell you, but you didn't do this, my point is come back and say, actually, but I did do this. Um, It's finding your voice. I think part of your education as a, student nurse was to help you find your voice and become sort of I wouldn't say assertive but be able to stand up for yourself and say but I have or while I didn't do this the patient is still happy and you know this was done I think it's really important uh, because we live in a very task oriented society where nursing is concerned and we need I'm not saying those tasks don't need to be done but we need to also balance with how we provide holistic care for patients and that will become patient-centered care yeah and that's what you're looking at it's so great to hear you say that, Kevin, because I think that's what I'm finding at the moment. Having just started, there's so many like t- things you need to get ticked off. Particularly, I love to quote someone said on Twitter this week: "Nobody ever died because they didn't have a wash before lunchtime." So, like, <laughs> that's all my friend So you do, um, you do find that you get so monopolized by these tasks, and there's things that I want to be doing and actually getting to know patients and find out what matters to them and what can be done, particularly during COVID at the moment to improve their stay yeah Yeah. and I wonder you know moving on from that I suppose you're talking about um you know newly qualified nurses finding their balance I suppose their way of challenging and and learning themselves Mm. do do you think the stuff that's going on you know in the wider world now around Black Lives Matters obviously it's Pride Week how do you think you know newly qualified nurses can reduce that stigma and inspire hope and learn maybe if they haven't had that background and that exposure themselves so I, I think the first thing is um I'm going to use the word fragility and I just don't mean it as white fragility where sexual orientation 
where disability, race, any of these come in, there is this fragility around us that we're not sure how to, we want to, even as an NQ and you want to help or you want someone to see that, you know, I am open to this, etc. I get a lot of the times patients look at me and they think, well, he's black, he's probably not gay and they're gay, you know. I, I, it's only if I say my husband, then they kind of click or, you know, and then this whole new world of conversation starts up. But even if you're not um, gay, you should be able to have that conversation as an ally and a supporter. So I would say there is a fragility around it. Um, nursing oftentimes use humor. I won't say as an end to and go in and use humor to begin with, unless you develop that relationship. So I would, I would say um, be yourself. Make things, um, you know, you could say, we're very open here. You can speak to me um, if you like what anything personal. And I think now that they think that um, assessments have changed where we need to ask people their sexual orientation. If you're looking at gay people, you need to ask them their sexual orientation. That starts a really nice question. You know, people may still be afraid, but the fact that it's on an admission sheet now, we should be able to have that conversation. Where in terms of when you look at things around um, race and Black Lives Matter, I think to be honest, we will not always get it right. As an NQN in anything you do, you do not, you will not get, always get it right. Let's be honest. And even for those of us who are really experienced, where um, talking about race and inequality associated with race, we will not always get it right. Because you may genuinely want to tell someone, actually, I don't understand this, but you don't know how to say it. Or you, um, so I heard someone recently said, but we're really good at, um, helping students from ethnic minority backgrounds come and get degrees. They're the first in their families. And I was like, let me give you a cape and a horse to come on board because you're the savior. <laughs> you have just saved these people. They didn't deserve to come to university and get a degree. You know, you just saved them by allowing them to come in. And I think Love that, that one of my things is you don't want to be seen as a savior. You want to be seen as someone who's working with you someone who is standing side by side and saying, look, I understand. We didn't get it right. They even didn't teach us in the nursing college how to deal with this, but tell me. And it's, it's those frank and open conversations. So there is a lot of fragility. The same thing around, you know, you may say, you know, in nursing college, they didn't really tell us a lot about our gay people and their health, but I know this that I've read of. And I know you're here for this physical health matter, but is there anything else I can do? Because you said your partner is male or your husband or your wife. And I think it's finding your own voice in saying that. But there will be fragility. We would not always get it right. So don't, just like when you were a student and you didn't get it right, you went home and you knocked yourself. And I think this is something with reflection in nursing. When we reflect, we always, when we look at how we could do it better, at the same time, we're knocking ourselves down. And I think yeah. we need to say, actually, I handled that quite well. But next time, this is what I do, rather than, you know, hit yourself and say, why didn't I do this this way? Why did I ask that stupid question? You can say, at least I asked the question. Next time, I'm going to soften the question how I do to get it right. And I think that's something you need that, to look yeah. at when that fragility starts taking place. I think also we have to understand um, where people who have now realized and nursing and we're realizing that actually the way patients have always been treated as standard is to do with um, white privilege. And as we kind of claw back and look at how we do this in a correct way or an appropriate manner, we need to think actually on the other side, my patient who's from that minority background may just think, what's going on here? Why are they being so nice to me all of a sudden? So I think <laughs> you have to really prepare. I mean, when I hear people being really nice to me at work, I'm like, 
you never used to talk to me. Why are you doing this now? You know, but people are trying. And I think that's what I'm trying to say. We need to realize that on both sides, and this counts for being gay, it counts for being disabled, um, for race, that people, there will be this fragility. And we have to kind of, I think what Black Lives Matter did, it opened our eyes to all the other isms that there is that we're not getting right. So we know there's a reason why we have the Black Lives Matter campaign, but when it makes us think on the wider level, and I'm not saying we dilute that movement, but what it makes us realize on the wider issue is that actually there are all these other things we still weren't doing right, just like with race. We still weren't seeing people's disability. So I have student nurses who are still scared to tell people where their mentors, they're dyslexic, because they're scared. They're really scared. But those NQNs who are there now and you're going to start mentoring students, you can say to them, actually, I am dyslexic. And, and you find that bond. So it's the same thing. You know, people have disabilities we wouldn't always see, and that's why we weren't getting it right. And I think we need to look at how we... So an NQN has a huge role because you're going to change the face of nursing. Uh, all the stuff, you know, we're going to hand this gauntlet over to you and you're going to go and practice and say, yeah, I'm going to do this bit. And it may take, it may take a lot. And I think when you were a student nurse, there would have always been your personal tutor or a lecture you identified with and yeah. call them up when the problem happens. Because I have my students who are now qualified nurses. They email me still. They DM me on social media and say, I have this problem but you always said I should do. Um, you know, I, and these are things that you, you hold on to. You go back to those mentors you had and you say, um, you know, you say, you always told me this. How, how do I resolve this now? Help me a little bit more. Um, and I, so I think still seek that help, although you're newly qualified. Well, I think that's great. And you have <laughs> kind of answered my last question, which would just be if you had any specific little piece of advice for NQNs, it can be practical, personal, big or small. What would your last piece of advice be to NQNs? I would say um, treat your practice a little bit like a geneticist does. So if you think of a geneticist who works with cancer cells, they look at one cell that may cause a gene mutation to cause, let's say, for example, breast cancer. And they will peel that cell back and back until they find the fault that they can correct. So it's the same thing with your practice. Um, treat, it, treat it like a cell where every day you peel your practice back or either you, you build it more and more rather than peeling it back. So you get that perfect cell that you then begin to say, actually, I am an expert in this area. I really understand, for example, if you're doing urology, I really understand prostate cancer in men and how the intersectionality of, um, I knew you about your dissertation, Greg, that's why I'm drawing that <laughs> as a reference. You know, and you look at that whole intersectionality of, you know, gay men and prostate cancer, etc. So you build your practice up. So treat, don't think that, you know, I need to go from here to there to there. Every day you could do, take the same thing and do it and try and do it differently and try and do it better. That, that you know, it makes you that expert. When people say, wow, inserting a cannula, Calvin's really good at that. Could be the toughest phase. <laughs> he knows how to do it. He uses distraction therapy. He does this. He gets into the vein so nicely. You can learn. So I think one of the things is don't think you have to learn everything, but what you do start learning, develop it to become that best that you can in that area. So then you become that expert. And then you move on and share that expert knowledge. I think that ties in really well with that, the theme of finding hope, because, you know, hope 
is about a journey to the future, isn't it? And if we sometimes we focus too far on the future, I think. So so that looking at becoming that expert in here and now of those things with with the idea that that will take you forwards in the future is really inspiring. Yeah. Thank you so much sure. for talking to us. It's been <laughs> sure. amazing. Great. I mean, as you say, as I said, you know, when you picked it up on Twitter, my last thing is I thought, um, you know, I never thought in my lifetime I would see gay men were able to get married. And I think it's the same thing. Um, we, I never thought, I, I, and what a big thought um, in my lifetime, let's hope that we will see a chief nursing officer that, that is from a, a black and ethnic minority group. You know, let's see someone from a, with a disability in these positions that are high profile. Um, so that's, that's the hope we live in, that, you know, we can, we can create this equal platform that we all speak from and then take people further. So it's a great hope that we could all have. Fingers crossed, definitely. Um, Calvin, <laughs> where can people find you on social media? So um, I can only do like one social media at a time. <laughs> so my main social media is Twitter. So it's at Calvin Morley. Um, so, so that's where I'm at Twitter. Um, I, I don't do anything else with it. I have a Facebook page, but it's, it's dead. It's, 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 it's too clunky to use. <laughs> Me too. Twitter's, yeah, Twitter's definitely my nursing uh, social yeah. media. I was going to say, I think, I think Twitter is great for connecting um, nurses, student nurses have done really well with connecting each other. And I think the next move is how student nurses who become newly qualified nurses start supporting each other and connecting, which is great with some of the stuff you all are doing. Thanks so much for talking to us today, Calvin. I could listen to you all day. It's been absolutely fascinating. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's been, it's been great. Lovely little chat. We are so lucky, Craig, to have had two inspirational guests on our first podcast. I'm really, you know, quite honoured and the conversations that we had with them were just all about inspiring hope. So the idea of this podcast for us is to have these guests on who, you know, can give us their insight and their feelings around whatever the theme is. And then for us to, I guess, talk about what we've learned from it and discuss how we think we can take that forwards and maybe get some feedback from other NQNs and, and think about how we can inform our practice because everything really has to be a reflection on our on our journey and all those conversations you have shape the future and, and talk to us about that hope, which we've both shared at the beginning about why hope is personally so important to us. But for me, what I took from both Tara and Calvin is some some comfort about where I'm sitting in in yeah. kind of these agendas and how I feel but also some practical ways forward and I think that's really helpful because sometimes we we talk about things you know university or, or in practice we talk about things from a real um kind of uh, philosophical viewpoint I think and we all believe maybe the right thing to do I think Calvin touched on that we all want to be better we all want to do things right and sometimes it's hard to know how we do that practically and from both Calvin and Tara I took really great inspiration and comfort in the fact that asking questions is okay and getting it wrong is okay because we were so terrified of of offending people rightly so we shouldn't go out to offend people but we're so terrified of offending people that maybe we don't ask those questions and it's you know it's okay to think to get things wrong I've shared with you this before that you know I didn't think when PPE became such a big thing, I didn't think about, you know, my colleagues who wear the hijab, how difficult that is for them to even think, put on a mask and that, you know, we were, people were timed on wards, right, for putting it on. And, and how ridiculous. Them. And, and I hadn't thought about that. And, you know, and then I look back and think, God, you know, I wish I'd thought about that. I wish I could have 
being that person that, you know, and then you beat yourself up and then that isn't hopeful or inspiring because you sort of start to withdraw, right? And then you can't beat people. As I've said already a million times in this podcast, for me being a nurse is about walking alongside people on their journey. And I think it was Calvin who said the same thing, that allies can walk alongside us. And I was like, yes. Um, and, And so for me, I feel they've inspired hope in me about the fact that I can be a positive ally and that I don't have to not raise my voice in support. And yeah, that, that's been really inspirational for me to to take that forwards. Well, I completely agree because I think at times um, I have felt that I've wanted to, to speak out in issues, or I have spoken out in issues, but I I'm very careful about what I say and feel like I have to teeter along a line because I'm white middle class cisgendered male and I have been like so worried that I will cause offence or that I'm not the right face at the table that I've I've just really worried and I've become paralysed by that fear so I think speaking yeah. with both Tara and Calvin it's given me that feeling that yes I've had student leadership positions and we now have this platform with our podcast but we can use that platform to amplify other people's voices and to bring other people's stories on and sh- help share their stories and not be afraid to do that because I think... It- yeah, because Tara, Tara said that, right? She said that 1% of the population is trans. Was that right? Was that what yeah. she said, I think? And that, you know, it's not them that's going to change the narrative. It's the other 99% of people sharing that story. And yeah living that experience and that's so true. And I think what, what I'm very cognizant about as well is what you can feel both yourself and um, me as as white individuals is it really struck a chord when Calvin talked about that white saviour thing people riding in with their horse <laughs> and their cape because you don't want to be that either like there's absolutely no. no way I want to feel like I'm ever creating opportunities for someone and it's because that's not right so it's about how it's so disingenuous right yeah because then it feels like you're you're ticking a box and you're like look at what I've done it's it's virtue seeking I'm an I great and that is absolutely not what I believe is fundamental at the heart of nursing for sure and when I was at uni um because you know I did get involved in lots of things and I think you know I wrote a blog about being the person at the front of the lecture theatre because the first time I went to uni you know the the thing I got most involved in was running to the bar when lectures were finished and (laughs) you know as a mature student and I'd given up a lot I you know so I've come and I've taken every opportunity and somebody I think it was in my second year said to me um oh look at her she's Wonder Woman you know and it wasn't said in a in a positive kind of that's nice kind of way and I felt a bit like that you know knight on a horse that they that's what they were accusing me of was trying to be all things to all people and it absolutely wasn't that was I suppose in a way quite selfish the stuff that I got involved in because I wanted to kind of suck everything out of my student journey but that that really made me retreat back in the same way that you say I didn't want to speak for other people I didn't want to um, take somebody else's agenda forward and and I've t- you know for two years I've kind of for 18 months I've held that comment in my mind and it still kind of affects me and and so yeah nights on charging horses is absolutely not how I want to be perceived and I think you're right that that does paralyze us and I think both Tara and Calvin then made me it did give me hope you know yeah. th- this was about hope and, and and did give me hope that actually I can be that person that helps to raise those issues and that voice and and question people and I have found myself since my you know 
necessarily challenging people that I maybe wouldn't have challenged before because I wanted to keep the peace and I didn't want to have that kind of conflict. And now you don't have to challenge people in an aggressive way. You don't have to, you know, you don't have to criticize them and make them feel bad. And that came really strongly, I think, from Tara in particular, that, you know, that isn't about that. It isn't about saying you got this wrong and you're a terrible person. It's about educating them and giving them that kind of chance to read about lived experiences or talk to people with lived experience, meet with people who've gone through these things. And that I feel like I now am more confident in in that challenge, but that challenge in a positive, let's move forward in a hopeful way rather than a, you got that wrong. What really struck me, um, particularly from Tara, but also through talking to Calvin, who is a black man who identifies as being part of the LGBT community, is about how important intersectionality is. We can't look at people as their separate identities. You, um, Their various identities are what shape their stories and their experiences. And I think it does people no service to look at them as their gender and their race and their sexuality because it's that combining factor. And I think I've been quite vocal always campaigning for um, LGBT issues because I had such, as I said at the start, a horrible journey at the beginning that I've really always focused on that. But no, it's up to me as well to put other people's agendas forward and and I feel empowered and hopeful from speaking to both Tara and Calvin to do that. And I think it's very important when we look at um, nursing, what Tara said and came across with Calvin as well is we need to make sure that with nurses working on ground level, but also with leaders and management, that we've got that marriage of people who have lived experience of these issues but who also are experts in their fields to come in and also to empower allies because it takes the marriage of those three to really make it work and if we're going to make any lasting much needed change within health and social care then it's going to require that because we can do reviews forever and highlight where things need to be changed but continual reviews really mean nothing unless we action them. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, I don't define myself as one thing. I, I have lots of different titles and names. So why should anybody else be just defined by their race or their sexuality or their gender? Like you say, I, you know, there's no secret in my world that I've been involved in girl guiding since I was seven and that I'm a leader. And, and I feel really passionately about the empowering women agenda and, you know, in its broadest sense, worldwide in, in the UK. And like you, that realization that you you can take forwards other you know there's there's gender and race there's gender and sexuality and those things go together um and that you know that cross section because I am not purely a mum or a nurse or a wife or a friend you are made up of many parts and all those experiences that come together you know my experience 25 years ago when I you know was literally unceremoniously thrown out of, of uni has made me who I am today and and made so I can't pretend that 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 I don't wear that hat you know that I have that invisible disability I've also got you know a a, a information processing disorder that was discovered when I was at university and so but people don't necessarily see that and I'm maybe not as vocal about those things as I think I am and so it's important to look at 
every individual, no matter whether you you have a camp like for you, it's the LGBT campaign because it's so close to you, but that you broaden that and champion everything. And I think, you know, I feel I do feel hopeful at the end of those conversations that we can start to move forwards. And that's so good because I would hate people to feel that was the worst thing for me, having no hope. I don't know if that was the same for you, but having no hope was just the hardest thing. And what I did is shut that door so uh, I, I did apply to nursing again four or five years later and because my degree ended up being, I, I fought to stay at uni and I got a past degree in health studies. Um, I didn't do a dissertation. So because of that, they wouldn't accept me onto the course because it had just become a degree course at that point. Um, so I felt like I had the door slammed twice. And then at that point, I just shut it down and just thought that that road is closed to me. And so I had no hope, but I dealt with that lack of hope by kind of charging forwards in other areas of my life and not thinking about it. Yeah. And so that's not healthy, right? So that doesn't no. help. And, and that's my- like you having that internalized homophobia. That's just not a healthy place to be. And so I want to say to people, you know, and I say it to my kids all the time, you can, you can do whatever you want to do. You can't do everything. You can't do everything. And Tara, you know, was really clear about it. You can't do everything. You can't be all things to all people, but you can achieve anything if you, if you put your mind to it. And that's the most hopeful and inspirational message that we hope people take away. Yeah, I absolutely think because hope, hope is what drives us all. And I often think like, my other half Patrick they were doing their virtual lever ceremony and one of the lines they said at the end was I hope um that you, you always stay true to yourself and that you can be happy because happiness is the best thing that you can be in life and I think hope and happiness yeah so. for sure if you have hope then you know that my, my granny used to say this too shall pass yes and that's, you know, that's true. This moment in time is a moment in time that we look back on. And if you think this too will pass and we can look to the future and be hopeful that small changes will lead to big changes, then our world will, will hopefully get better. Thank you very much for listening, guys. Thanks for listening. To make sure you stay up to date with our latest podcast, subscribe to Retain the Passion on your usual podcast provider. You can follow us on all the social media channels at podrtp on Twitter, facebook.com forward slash podrtp, or see our website www.podrtp.com for all our episodes. You can follow Craig at craigdavidson85 on Twitter, or me, Claire, at Manners of Marple. See you next time. All music from this podcast was courtesy of Kevin McLeod.